right, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from the book of Acts, at least for one Sunday, and we'll be in the book of Colossians. Colossians comes after Philippians and before 1 Thessalonians. If you want an easy way to remember the order of some of the New Testament books, you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company. All right, so company comes after power, Colossians comes after Philippians. If you're reading out of the Pew Bible, uh, the ESV, page 983, the NIV, page 1142. Before I read, let's pray again. Father, now as we turn to your word, I pray that you would make the blind to see, that you would cause the deaf to hear, that you would raise the dead, that you would do it by the power of your spirit, that you would do it through your word, that as it is read and heard and preached, that we would be brought near to you, that we would see you, glorify you, and be saved. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Colossians 1, 1 and 2, a very long section. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Amen. Imagine if you're, uh, you're walking through the church on a weekday. And as you're making your way through, you hear Stacy talking on the phone in her office. And as you get closer, you recognize the name of a very good friend as she says it. Being a little bit nosy and probably curious, you slow down and try to listen a little bit more intently. And you hear her say things like, well, she's not, she's not really good at that. I don't think you should do that. Maybe you should try this, etc." Well, now you're really curious, right? And if you're really nosy, you just stop right there at that door and try to listen for more. Because you want to know two things. Who's she talking to? And what are they talking about? Right? And that's the similar situation we have when we come to a letter in the New Testament. We have one end of the conversation. We have Paul writing. And more than that, we don't even know who Paul is. At least with Stacy, we know that she's probably saying something good. She means well, right? Because we know Stacy. Um, but we don't really know Paul, the Apostle Paul. We definitely don't know the people he's writing to. We've never been to this place called Colossae. And we've never lived in the time in which these people are living. And so we need background. We need to know what's going on. And so today, we're, as we take these two verses... We're going to look at a little bit of the background, exactly what's going on in Colossae. Who's, who's saying what and what's going on? All right? And that's why we're going to have two very simple questions, two very simple questions to answer. first one is, who is Paul? And the second one is, who are the Colossians? Who is Paul and who are the Colossians? Now, Jake has been preaching through Acts. Uh, and so if you have been here for that series, then you know uh, that Paul... And the actions of Paul take up a good part of it. Uh, but if you aren't familiar with B- Bible history, which you may not, and that's okay, let me give you a quick rundown. Paul 
was a Jewish religious terrorist. He hated Christianity. And it was his mission in life to persecute the church. He witnessed the stoning of Stephen. He approved of his execution. And after that, it says that Paul was breathing threats and murder. That's who Paul was, okay? And he gets permission from the high priest to go to a place called Damascus. And he is going there to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem and have them stand trial. As he gets close to Damascus, God gets a hold of him. God knocks him down, blinds him in light, speaks to him. We'll find out later he gives a vision. And when Paul comes to, he's blind. He cannot see. And over the next couple of days, and especially over the next few months and years, Paul begins to understand what it is that God has called him to do. Paul the terrorist becomes Paul the evangelist. Paul the church planner. Right? His life changes 180 degrees from where it was going. That's Paul. But he also describes himself in another couple of ways. He calls himself an apostle. That word means one who is sent, a delegate, a messenger. All right, and what it would come to mean in the New Testament is the original disciples of Jesus and Paul, they would be called the apostles, right? And Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the foundation of the church is laid on the apostles. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The apostles make up the foundation, and the rest builds up from there. And that means a couple of things. One, there are no more apostles today. All right, not in the official sense. And so while Paul was a church planner and an evangelist and a missionary and a preacher and a teacher, he was more than all that. He was an apostle. He was an official representative of Jesus Christ himself. But there's another thing that Paul says. How did Paul become an apostle? It's not a job he chose. It's not a job he tried out for. It's not a job he was elected to do. Paul says there in verse 1, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by what? What does he say? The will of God. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. And if you know his story, that's pretty clear. Paul didn't have a whole lot to do. Paul was going in the opposite direction from being an apostle. And God turned him around. Now why... Does that matter to us? Well, first of all, this letter is going to emphasize the lordship of Jesus. That Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is the king over all things, and that includes the lives of his people, and that includes the church. And Paul, so it's fitting that Paul says he's an apostle by the will of God. But more than that, why does that matter to us today? Because the God who saves Paul is the God who saves you. And the God who called Paul to his mission calls you and me to our mission. Just because Paul is an apostle, just because he had a specific mission, does not mean that you and I are unimportant. does not mean that you and I don't have a mission. Paul describes himself in this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, 
unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Friend, his grace toward you is not in vain either. And by the grace of God, you are what you are. As we'll go through this letter, you'll find out that you are no longer shackled to a sinful background. You are no longer a slave to a checkered family history. You are not in bondage to man-made religion. You are not a servant of of even a sinful weak. You have been set free by the blood of Christ to be a servant of the King. And just as he had a call for Paul, he has a call for you. So that's Paul. Now, who are the Colossians? Well, he describes them uh, in a couple of ways. First, he calls them saints. And that literally means holy ones or godly ones. These are, when the Bible uses this term, it's, it's people who are consecrated, people who are set apart to glorify God. They have been taken from where they are, where they existed, and given a new name and given a new duty, a new responsibility to glorify God. That is their identity. That is their role as saints. Now, Paul uses this name for every church he writes to. Even Corinth, which if you're familiar with the Bible, everything was wrong in Corinth. And yet Paul calls them saints. That means that saint is not a special designation for the kingdom VIPs. Saint is not a name for the most valuable players on Jesus' team. Saint is the name of every Christian. Saint is the title of every believer. If you are in Christ, yes, you still sin, but your name is no longer sinner, but saint. It's a family name. William Hendrickson says this, Saints then are persons upon whom the Lord has bestowed a great favor and who have been entrusted with a weighty responsibility. Entrusted with a great, excuse me, given a great favor and entrusted with a great responsibility. Those are saints. But then he describes them this way. He calls them faithful brothers. And if you're, uh, depending on what translation you're reading, you may see a footnote that says that can mean brothers and sisters. Right? That Greek word is, is one word, and yet it was often used to refer to siblings. Right? It's a family term. These are people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that means that the church is not primarily an organization. It is not just a group of people who get together for special events and do this weird thing called worship on Sunday mornings. The church is a family. Brothers and sisters under the name of Christ. That's why Paul can say at the end of verse 2 that God is their mutual father. These people have never met Paul, and yet they share a father. They are brothers and sisters. They are a family. All right, what else do we know? For this, we'll have to go a little bit beyond just these two verses. Already said that these are people Paul has never seen. 
He, is, he did not plant this church. It was most likely planted by a guy named Epaphras that we'll read about as we continue on in Colossians. But more interesting than that is that Colossae was not a very important place. It wasn't a very important city. It was kind of out of the way. In fact, it was close to two other cities that were much more important, much more popular, much more politically necessary, much more industrious, much wealthier. In light of those two sister cities, Colossae was not really a place you wanted to visit. There wasn't really anything worth going to Colossae for. And yet, these people were important to God, and so they are important to Paul. Many of these people are converts. Uh, They're new converts. They would have been Gentiles, and that means that they were not Jews. They were not associated with the God of the Bible. And so when they came to the faith, they came away from all kinds of false worship, idol worship, all of the Roman gods that were available. They could all be worshipped in Colossae. And that's the kind of background these people were coming out of. And it would have been, especially for a young convert, it would have been very tempting to go back. Right, as the Christian life got harder to say, I didn't face these kind of troubles when I was when I worshipped Zeus. Right? When I was a when I was a pagan, and I don't use that term negatively, it's just a descriptive term. When I was a pagan, it wasn't this hard. And so it would have been very easy to go backwards. And more than that, Paul hears from Epaphras that the church on the whole is doing well, but there are some serious challenges. It seems that there are some false teachers in Colossae who are saying, yeah, faith in Jesus, that's a good start. But there are some other things you need to do. You need to add severe self-discipline. There are some disciplines you need to pick up if you really want to stay away from your pagan past. So they added um, some old Jewish traditions, along with some severe self-discipline, and along with uh, some, some pagan philosophy, and they kind of made this strange religious cocktail that these false teachers were serving up in Colossae and misleading. In essence, what they were saying was this. Faith in Jesus is a good starting point. But if you really want to hang on, there are some other things you need to add to him. And here's how Paul responds to that in 2.23. He says this. Although these things have a reputation of wisdom... By promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. In other words, sure, these things look good. They sound religious. They may make you look good and sound religious. But they won't be the cure for what ails you. They won't make a difference when it comes to your battle over your sin. Now, why do I say all of that? What's my point? What could we possibly have in common with a small town situated near two larger, more important, more commercial, more industrial, more political cities? What could we possibly have in common with a small church who had some people maybe who had been around religion for a long time and kind of knew who God was. They're made mostly up of new converts, people who were struggling to break free of their past, struggling to break free of their idolatry. 
Does any of that sound familiar? Does any of that ring a bell? Paul could have very easily been writing to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters at Clanton. And in fact, he is. And here's what Paul is trying to convey to the Colossians and to the Clantonians. Jesus Christ is a full, complete, all-sufficient Savior. You don't need Jesus and visions. You don't need Jesus and tongues. You don't need Jesus and Hail Marys. You don't need Jesus and philosophy. You don't need Jesus and transcendental meditation. You don't need Jesus and self-discipline, strict self-discipline. Because if you needed any of those things, then Jesus is insufficient. And what I mean by that is he cannot fill it up. He's lacking. There's more to it. But Jesus is not insufficient. Jesus is all-sufficient. You want to come to the faith? You must come through Christ because it is Christ alone who has purchased peace by His blood on the cross. Colossians 1.20 Do you want to grow in the faith? then you must not move from the hope of the gospel, 123. You must hold fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished, knit together, and grows with growth from God, 219. So for the new believer and for the old believer, the solution is the same. It is Christ and Christ alone. Here is the main theme of Colossians that we will continually come back to. Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. John Newton, he's the writer of a hymn you may know called Amazing Grace. He was a converted slave trader. Um, And when he came to the faith, it was a dramatic coming, and he wrote many wonderful hymns that still serve the church today. And as he approached the end of his life, as his mind and as his speech failed him, he is rumored to have said this. When I was young, I was sure of many things. Now that I am old, I am only sure of two. One, I am a miserable sinner. And two, Christ is a great and all-sufficient Savior. Can you agree with John Newton? Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. In Him there is nothing lacking. And if you have never trusted His never-ending sufficiency, I invite you to do so today. That your confession would be the same as John Newton's and would be the same as Paul's and would be the same as every believing Colossian whom we will read about. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would behold you in your word. And as we see you, that we would be saved from our past. We would be saved from ourselves. We would fear the evil one no more that we would trust you. Lord, I pray for those 
who have not yet made that profession, that today they would be drawn to do it by your Spirit and you given grace. Lord, draw us to yourself. Even as we go out this week, draw us to yourself that we would remember that we are free to serve the King and that we would answer the call with gladness and joy. We pray it in his name. Amen. Soon and very